And I heard Lakshmi from KKPKP speaking, and I, she's brilliant, and I loved you know, all of her ideas. And um, after she spoke, I went to her and I said, so, you know, you didn't mention any demands related to ensuring that the municipality employs your members. Um, and as a, a trade unionist who had actually then started working with municipal workers, this for me was the obvious demand to make. And Lakshmi looked at me and kind of shook her set her head and said, well, why would I want to do that to my members? There was the voice of Melanie Sampson, an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa. A former trade union official, Professor Sampson's research and political work focuses on reclaimer of waste picker movements. In the clip you just heard, Professor Sampson spoke of a conversation she had with Lakshmi Narayan. Lakshmi, another guest on this episode, is among the founders of the Kagat Kachpatra Kashtakari Panchayat or KKPKP, a membership-based trade union of waste pickers and itinerant waste buyers in Pune in Maharashtra. The conversation between them where Melanie is surprised that Lakshmi would not demand the Pune municipality employ the members of KKPKP reflected a fundamental difference in understanding between them about the purpose of organizing around work. It spoke to their different experiences of organizing. Melanie's organizing work up to that point had been with the South African National Union of Metal Workers, which is a union of formal workers. They had employment contracts, paid leave, and social security protection emerging from their employment. There were laws that established minimum standards for their work and a labor inspectorate who could hold employers accountable if they did not meet those standards. These characteristics, however, could only describe a small minority of the world's workers. The large majority, significantly more than 90% of India's workers, for example, are employed informally. The waste picker members of Pune's KKPKP are part of that majority. I mean, it's an interesting history because, I mean, work itself and collectivized work um, started off on an informal, what we would interpret as an informal basis, um, you know, before the before the Industrial Revolution, you know, the the nature of work was was by and large that of self-employment, um, unregulated. Um, that then shifted into forms of production that were slightly more collectivized and and slightly more formalized, but not not necessarily in the factory, particularly in the case of home-based workers and so on, where a lot of production, although for the market, um, nevertheless was not yet collectivized into factory production. You're listening to Jane Barrett, on the Nagrik Podcast. 
Some of us share a misconception about informal work that it is a recent development, a consequence simply of competitive pressures that have forced employers to adopt non-standard forms of employment. Jean Barrett, who has long years of experience organizing such outsourced and subcontracted workers in South Africa, corrects this misconception. Both historically and geographically, standard or formal work conditions have actually been the exception. So it was only really with the Industrial Revolution and then as time went on with Fordism and so on that this sort of notion of organized, formalized um, collective production took took root. And then, of course, what went with that was um, attempts to to try and regulate that kind of work um, collectivization of workers into trade groups, which ultimately became trade unions, um, who then put forward uh, proposals for protections against super exploitation. Um, and then, of course, we went through, you know, a period certainly in the industrialized north for many, many years, in the, particularly during the sort of boom years of the 70s and the 80s of, you know, standardization of formal employment and so on. But the reality was that, you know, in in most regions of the world, um, that form of work has never been the dominant form of work. I mean, Africa has, has, has never been predominantly formal uh, employment, industrial Industrialization didn't take root in the same way in in Africa, and in large parts of Asia, the same the same is the case. So you know, there's never been a homogeneous form of work throughout the world: informal self-employment and informal uh, employment with an employer has you know, has consistently existed in different parts of the world. I think what has changed is just a greater awareness of the extent of the range of kinds of work that exist. You're listening to Jane Barrett on the Nagrik Podcast. She's the director of the Organizing and Representation Program at WeGo, which stands for Women in Informal Employment, Globalizing and Organizing. Vigo is a network that links together informal worker organizations and strengthens them. This is the Nagrik Podcast. I am Aju John. Jane Barrett explained to us how informal work has historically been the norm. Indeed, the vast majority of work in history has been performed without paid leave or work-related social security. When a significant portion of work in the Global North or the so-called developed nations came to be performed through formal arrangements, it was the exception. The large majority of work in the Global South or the poorer nations, which is where the large majority of the world's population lives, remained informal. That exception may not only have been geographic. In recent decades, the proportion of informal work has increased in the Global North and this development has coincided with the emergence in the 1970s and the 1980s of a set of policies adopted by governments around the world to increase the role of the private sector in the economy and in society. This was called neoliberalism. The sharp increase in employment through non-standard arrangements such as outsourcing and subcontracting 
came to characterize this neoliberal turn along with other policies of economic liberalization such as privatization, deregulation, globalization, the lowering of trade barriers, the removal of price controls, austerity and reductions in government spending. We return now to Melanie Sampson and Jane Barrett. Although informal work is not new in a historical or global perspective, and many people were excluded from uh, formal work in the, in the global north, there was a large swathe of the working class population that did enjoy formal uh, work and formal employment in advanced capitalist countries. And so one of the things that we are seeing right now with the rise of neoliberalism is a dramatic increase uh, in the informalization of work in the global north, whereas it's something that we've been living with in the global south uh, for a very long time. So this is one of those instances where it's very clear that when we're developing our understanding of the capitalist economy, we know that starting from analyzing in, uh, what's happening in the global south can provide us with a much better understanding of the nature of employment in the current conjuncture, and that there's much that we can learn in the global north from what has been done in the what has been happening in the global south and from the studies that have been done on it um and of course you know the trade union movement dominated by the trade unions of the north which were the most powerful um because they were rooted in industrial strength um you know when they started to experience the disintegration of a system of formal employment with outsourcing, subcontracting, um, and other forms of, of uh, work that, that made employment less uh, secure and more precarious. The trade unions of the North increasingly started to articulate a resistance to the informalization of formal work. Um, and over time, you know, the conversations have come together that, and, and they came together, um, very, you know, in quite a, a, a sharp way in a way with the discussions that took place in the International Labour Conference where regulation of informal work was discussed and, and the outcome of which was recommendation 204. The International Labour Organization's Recommendation 204 is titled Transition from the Informal to the Formal Economy. Even though it is not binding, it reflects the tripartite consensus among organizations of workers, organizations of employers and governments regarding 12 guiding principles to promote the economic inclusion of informal workers through policies aimed simultaneously at a. formalizing the informal economy and b extending social security protections to informal workers. But as Melanie Sampson will explain to us now, the formalization of a sector of the economy where work has been performed through informal arrangements will not necessarily benefit those informal workers. Obviously, with neoliberal restructuring, we are seeing many people being pushed out of formal work and then therefore entering the informal economy and waste picking. And I think the best example here is in Argentina, where with their economic crisis, many people who were previously middle class have actually ended up um, working, working as, as, as reclaimers. There's another relationship 
between neoliberalism and reclaimers, which is, is less recognized and is something that I've done quite a bit of research on, which is that we know that as part of neoliberalism, private enterprise is constantly trying to find new spheres of accumulation, new areas where they can be generating a profit. That's one of the reasons we see privatization of existing um, national departments and municipal departments and services. But in the case of reclaiming, what we have seen in many countries is that it's reclaimers working informally who identified a gap in the market that, um, and they began to generate an income for themselves by collecting recyclables and, and um, selling them into the global uh, value chain. Now, industry and government have woken up that, oh, wow, formal industry can also be generating a profit by doing this. And so uh, I, I argue that we're seeing a different form of accumulation by dispossession in which government is assisting private industry to capture that sphere of accumulation created by reclaimers. And so it's dispossessing them of a sector they have created. It's a form of epistemic dispossession as they are basically stealing the, the knowledge and the ideas created by reclaimers without compensating them. And so I think it's really important to recognize that dual relationship between neoliberalization and, and reclaiming. Here's the thing that with respect to waste picking, waste picking is never privatized. What happens is that waste collection systems are privatized and waste pickers who have actually worked on the periphery or outside of the municipal system, almost parallel to it, they are the ones who typically get displaced. So in most municipalization contracts, in most municipal contracts, where the, whether it's in the United States or in Europe or in, in literally any part of the world, where contracts have happened for waste collection, typically the erstwhile waste pickers, the itinerant waste collectors in those cities have got displaced and completely new players have come in. There's been a long history of struggle and in fact, it still is, I mean, there are canners and new, like there, there are many groups even in the States and in Europe who are fighting as informal workers and vying with the formal contractors for access to the dry waste, to the recyclables. So, which is why there are many cities which have very strict regulations on access to such waste, which the contractor has kind of built into his costing. So, uh, in many cities, uh, for instance, a free floating waste picker is not allowed to access a public bin and take out the waste because a contractor who is planning to collect it has already factored in what amount of either value or cost he's going to make both on the tipping fee and therefore the weight which will be compromised if someone takes it as well as on the value potentially of the recyclables. That was Lakshmi Narayan explaining why merely formalizing waste collection services through a municipal contract with a private waste collection agency will not benefit informal waste pickers. In fact, it most likely will harm their access to the value in the waste. Lakshmi is among the founders of Kagat Kachpatra Kashtakari Panchayat, or KKPKP, a membership-based trade union of waste pickers and itinerant waste buyers. In this episode of the Nagrik Podcast, we will try to understand what the experiences of KKPKP can teach us about collective action among informal workers. For now, let's return to Melanie Sampson. Um, what is true is that a lot of self-employed workers in the informal economy do naturally self-organize. So if you take street vendors, for example, of necessity, they need to collectivize in order to 
secure the spaces that they work in, um, both to, 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 you know, to collaborate with one another about how they use that space and so on. So street vendors and some other sectors of self-employed workers in the informal economy very often do self-organize. The same goes for waste pickers on, on, um, uh, landfill sites, they need to self-organize in order to, to um, secure their access to the landfill and so on. So, you know, trade unionists, formal trade unionists, often make the mistake of saying, well, uh, workers in the informal economy are unorganized just because they don't see the similar sorts of organizations. But that's not really the case. There are very often self-organized, but at a very, very local level. This question of how to organize informal workers is something that um, activists, uh, trade unions and academics alike have been uh, struggling with uh, for quite some time. And again, I want to take us back historically that at the dawn of capitalism, when workers' movements began organizing workers, they were organizing informal workers, and there were many creative forms of organizing. Similarly, in South Africa during apartheid, uh, the, the nascent trade unions couldn't just use the standard ways that unions organize in the North. They were going to people's homes. They were having all night organizing sessions and, and, uh, and meetings with workers because of the context within which they were organizing. So I think, yes, there are particular challenges to organizing informal workers, and I'll speak a bit about those. But the key thing that I want to note is the main reason trade unions are struggling to organize informal workers is because the trade unions have become so comfortable in kind of a, a recipe approach to how to organize workers that is based on assumptions related to formal work. And so I think there's a very rich history that we can be drawing on to look at how to organize informal workers. That said, yes, there are challenges. So for example, many informal workers do not have a common workplace. And so rather than just going into a factory, um, you need to be finding ways to, for example, organize where workers are living. One of the things about organizing reclaimers or waste pickers is that while at the, the garbage dumps, those who are still working at landfills, they are concentrated in one location. They all know each other. And then the, you can think of the, the more spatially concentrated ways of organizing at the workplace that we've had in the past. Those who work in the streets, you have to find where and how you're going to organize them. And so, um, again, we often think of street waste pickers as working randomly on their own. But the African Reclaimers Organization in Johannesburg, when they were starting to organize, realized, yes, we may go off on different routes, but waste pickers sort their materials in common places, and many of them live together. And so therefore, the approach has been to organize where they're sorting and where they're living. And so one of, one of the, the strategies that, that we've adopted as we go is to try and support those existing organizations to sort of transform themselves into organizations that have greater visibility and greater power. So to encourage them to work together with other 
um, very local organizations to create bigger organizations to, um, you know, to adopt a constitution so that they have a some system of democratic control, um, to think about the objectives of the organization beyond just the very immediate uh, reasons for organizing and so on. Um, and very often, you know, that means adopting a form of organization ultimately that looks not dissimilar to a trade union, you know, signing up members, having a small membership fee, um, having an elected executive, having rules of engagement, um, having financial controls. So, you know, they might call themselves an association, but for all intents and purposes, they, they're not terribly different from a trade union um, in structure. But then, you know, when it comes to the functioning of the organization for self-employed workers, the next step really is to try and identify who who's the negotiating partner. If, if we have complaints about the environment in which we work, who do we go to and how do we, do we just go with a begging bowl or do we go with a set of demands and um, insist on regular meetings and so on in the same way that a trade union would do with an employer. And so our task as we go and the task of the, the, the global networks of workers in the informal economy is really to help those organizations um, sort of self-define themselves more clearly as worker organizations and to identify who the negotiating partners are, and then to develop strategies of gaining influence and changing the conditions under which they work. And so that task is not only to encourage the organizations themselves to see themselves differently and to, to take on the task of representing workers in the informal economy with clear demands for change, but the task is also to address the potential allies in the trade union movement, to, to recognize that these associations also have a trade union function. You're listening to Melanie Sampson on the Nagrik Podcast. I'm Aju John. If you like what you've heard so far, please share this episode with your friends and colleagues. That really is the best way you can support our work. You can also write to me at aju at nagriklearning.com with your feedback and your suggestions. On this podcast, we learn together to become better at public life. In previous episodes, we have learned about labor organizing in India's technology industry, how India's forest-dwelling people have developed grassroots-level democratic practices for the governance of forests, the global campaign that delivered significantly cheaper medicines during the AIDS crisis, about the struggle to protect the Niamgiri hills of Orissa from mining, and about how some remarkable lawyers are providing legal services to the survivors of communal violence in India. The Nagrik Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms. All you have to do is to search for The Nagrik Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or Google Podcasts. When you find our feed, you will find the older episodes as well. Subscribe to the feed to know when we release a new episode.
This podcast is a part of Nagrik Open Civic Learning, a project to radically reduce the inequality in acquiring the knowledge and skills to effectively participate in public life by publishing free and open learning materials. For example, right now on www.nagriklearning.com, that is n a g r i k learning.com, you can learn for free from a course on labor and decent work in supply chains about how workers can organize for better conditions even as the production processes of goods are no longer contained within national boundaries. We now return to this episode of the Nagrik podcast on learning from Pune's KKPKP and their resistance to the privatization of municipal waste collection services. Now in Pune like I said uh, what happened is that before the municipality could privatize we came up and said that instead of privatizing and bringing in a whole new layer of workers who are very unlikely to be the waste pickers because the waste pickers typically in no city have waste pickers actually got integrated in any private contracts because a private company comes in and it's a very often very very often it's likely to be a young male who's integrated because it's easier for them they bring in some level of education they're possibly easier for contractors to control and to actually bring together the very dispersed and fairly invisible waste pickers under a common umbrella and then integrate them almost never happens in pune we chose to occupy that space saying that this space is not currently covered currently as in 20 years back this space is not currently covered by municipal contracting municipality is not doing waste collection at that time before the municipal solid waste handling rules the municipality was collecting waste from containers that were placed at different parts of the city they were not even containers in some cases they were literally just cement uh, barrels whatever some form of waste uh, some form of let's say accumulation of waste was there in those places sometimes it was just dumped and the municipal role was to collect it secondary collection from those places our point was that the waste picker is the ideal person to fill the space between the doorstep to that bin and uh, uh kkpkp actually bid for that space through this uh, swachh cooperative and occupied it lakshmi narayan is referring here to the formation in 2005 of swachh a wholly owned workers cooperative that in partnership with the pune municipal corporation integrated waste pickers into door to door waste collection work 1500 waste pickers became service providers to the city's households a union of informal workers had formed a work cooperative Was there a unique development in the histories of organizing among informal workers? We return again to Melanie Sampson and Jane Barrett. So the one the one thing that a lot of you know a lot of street vendors in cities um pay fees every week or every month to the municipality effectively license fees. Um and it's not unusual for groups of street vendors or market vendors to withhold the payment of their fees um as a as a form of protest but but also of exercising some um sort of economic influence over the municipality where the you know where the fees are quite high and where where the numbers of vendors are quite high you know it can actually make quite a big difference to the revenue of of the city um but usually it's you know it's it's symbolic often um but it it does have some economic impact on the on the city 
What we found is that the ways that waste pickers organize in different countries is very much influenced by the political context and the history of worker organizing. So, for example, in Pune, uh, in India, you have the KKPKP, which is a democratic mass-based trade union, and they identify as a union. Whereas in a country like Colombia, uh, it, it's incredibly dangerous to be a trade unionist. Trade unionists are assassinated on, on a, a frequent basis. So that was one of the reasons why in Colombia they chose to organize in cooperatives rather than in trade unions. So we need to be looking at that context. Um, but there is also, uh, there are many different kinds of cooperatives that waste pickers are forming. Uh, through which to organize. Some of them take a political role as well as a, a working role. Um, but other examples might be of waste pickers stopping to collect recyclables and residents in the city then seeing how, you know, without them, um, the, the, the task of solid waste management um, is 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 made much more difficult. Um, we have seen examples in some countries of you know where seasonal agricultural workers who are informally employed have found it very difficult to to exercise any power over their employer because they are seasonal and you know they they very easily replaced but they've done things like in South Africa um, blocked off the main highway next to the next to the farms um, in in many countries uh, waste pickers are also choosing to organize at the most basic level in cooperatives and those cooperatives, uh, exist because the the reclaimers work together uh, to collect, salvage, and and sell their materials, and to try to move up the value chain and start actually processing the recyclables. But those cooperatives, uh, at times, can engage in 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 political actions in other places at other times. Then they are only focusing on on the work related issues. So I think there are two kinds of cooperatives that informal workers have established. The one is work cooperatives, so collectivizing the work, whether it's uh, workers who are working in their homes, collectivizing and forming a sewing cooperative or a baking cooperative, whatever, um, or a waste recycling cooperative. Um, and then the cooperatives of the form that I was referring to just now in relation to social security, you know, a savings scheme cooperative or a, um, a bank cooperative, which again is something Sewa has in India has done. So there are two kinds of cooperatives. I think the, the latter kind, the, the, um, savings, banking, that kind of cooperative is often a lot more successful than the work cooperatives. Something that, that is happening in South Africa, and I'm sure it's happening in other parts of the world, is that while when we think of a cooperative, we are thinking of a democratic worker-controlled organization, national government has decided that it wants everyone to form cooperatives, and particularly uh, they're encouraging people to form recycling cooperatives. And this is actually 
their way of ensuring that the workers cannot make demands to be employed by the municipality. So this is actually part of the neoliberal trend in, in, in municipal governance. So when we hear that there's a cooperative, we have to ask what kind of cooperative is it? Is it a democratic cooperative and what kind of work that it's doing? Uh, work cooperatives come with a lot of challenges. Um, often, you know, the, the capital inputs are very limited and the capital available to, to the workers is, is, is insufficient to be able to sustain what is effectively a small collective business. Another way that, that waste pickers are organizing, and I'll give the example of, uh, of South Africa, we have the African Reclaimers Organization which uh, has just been registered as, as you know, a, an actual organization. Um, but the people are direct members of the organization. And one of the things that Errol has been focusing on is the fact that many, many uh, reclaimers here and around the world don't want to form cooperatives because people who go into this, um, into this sector very often value their independence, they value the flexibility, they like working for themselves. So we see you know, a lot of failures in work cooperatives, which is not to say that it's not a route that should be tried, but just that we do get a bit frustrated at times when uh, some NGOs and development practitioners and commentators sort of quite glibly argue that work cooperatives is the way to go as if it's very very simple and it's not it's very complicated and it's it's often very difficult for those cooperatives to remain financially viable without some kind of input or subsidy support so i guess what i'm saying is work cooperatives need a lot of very careful thinking for them to succeed um, and and sometimes they need it you know the cooperative needs to accept it requires additional inputs financial inputs particularly to 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 make it viable which in a sense is a contradictory thing because you know one hopes that the cooperative is an example of of auto of economic autonomy and self-sufficiency um, but it's very difficult to attain and maintain that. So Aero currently has a, a really fantastic project called Recycling with Reclaimers, where, like in Pune, the reclaimers are directly providing the collection service to the residents. But rather than doing so as a cooperative, the reclaimers are still working as individuals. But Arrow is playing a coordinated role. So it's kind of a coordinated integration of individuals. And I think that particularly given that many reclaimers do not want to be for part of cooperatives, this is a really exciting way of, of, of organizing reclaimers. You know, in Argentina, the movement of occupied factories still exists, and those are cooperatively driven. Those were factories that, that were closed in the 80s crash. Um, and some of them still 
managed to keep their heads above water, not without their challenges, but, you know. So there are some, there's some good examples around the world for sure. But um, we, we certainly wouldn't like to encourage people to see cooperatives as the panacea for uh, informality. Another approach that's been taken to organizing reclaimers is NGOs who go out and, and try to, to promote organizing of reclaimers. Some of them do this in a way where they maintain final decision-making and control. And once you get donor funding thrown into the mix, this can become very complicated because the NGOs then have a financial and material interest in continuing to play that central role in organizing reclaimers. But of course, there are other NGOs who are really committed to democratic uh, worker organization who will see their role as providing an organizer and facilitating the autonomous organizing of waste pickers so that they will eventually, um, hopefully sooner rather than later, be forming their own organizations. But, but I do think we have seen that NGOs, if they have the right political commitments, can play an important role in initiating uh, organizing of, of waste pickers. You know, the issue is really to, to remember the, the economic role that workers of the informal economy play and, and, and then to think about strategies that match that, that role. It's very common that the first demands are simply to be recognized that they exist because municipal authorities and industry benefit greatly and they like the benefits that they get from the work that reclaimers are doing, but they don't want to acknowledge uh, that they are actually a part of this recycling economy. So the first is to demand recognition. And what that also means is to demand that when municipalities are developing recycling programs, that they start with what exists and acknowledge that the, the reclaimers are already there doing the work. And when we're talking about uh, the demand to be to be recognized, it's also the demand to be valued. So when um, uh, municipalities do think about waste pickers, either they're thinking of them as nuisances, as uh, destroying their image of a world-class city and so wanting to eradicate them, but even when municipalities do start uh, engaging with waste pickers, they often do so through what I call a charity model of integration, where they think that experts and offices know best what reclaimers need and what should be done for them. And, and of course, that's highly offensive, but also those programs always fail because reclaimers or waste pickers are the experts on how the recycling systems in our cities are working. So it's, it's crucially important that they're also demanding that they need to be centrally involved in developing uh, or, or uh, growing um, the, uh, and the, official, the officially recognized waste management and recycling systems in our municipalities. And, and related to that, you know, a key demand that uh, reclaimers here in South Africa and, and across the world have 
is that when municipalities realize they need to start having municipal recycling programs, they have to stop contracting private companies to do that work because those companies are trying to collect the same materials that reclaimers have always collected. And so in South Africa, people talk about it as if it's a form of job creation to contract these private companies but it's a form of job destruction and it's dispossessing the reclaimers. And so reclaimers are demanding municipalities need to start uh, developing officially recognized recycling systems from what exists, from the work that reclaimers are already doing and to be learning from them um, how we need to uh, further develop these, these recycling systems. Sorry, and another key point is payment for the work that they do because municipalities and the recycling industry have benefited tremendously from the, the work that the reclaimers do to extract recyclables from the waste stream. In South Africa, some of my colleagues have found that reclaimers are saving municipalities in the country 750 million rand a year in landfill airspace alone. And uh, yet the reclaimers are not paid for the service that they're providing. And so a key demand is that municipalities work with them to provide the service and that they be paid for the service that they provide. You were listening to Melanie Sampson and Jane Barrett on the Nagrik podcast. They explained the different forms in which informal workers organize to improve their lives and their conditions of work and the various circumstances in which it may make more sense to form a cooperative than a trade union. There is no getting away from the fact, however, that organizing presents a special challenge for informal workers. It's true that for a lot of um, self-employed workers particularly, if they spend time organizing, it's at the, at the expense of income. Um, and so what often happens in organizations of the informal economy is that workers... Uh, collect money amongst themselves and they they cover the lost income of those that are spending time organizing that that happens quite a lot um or they collect money to cover the transport of the delegation that's going to meet the the municipality or whatever so you get a lot of those very solid um kind of solidarity actions at a very local level, um, what organisations, you know, if the organisation has a few more resources, either through external funding or or other means, um, some organisations pay a small sort of stipend out of their out of the organisation's funds. Um, to compensate for lost income. But a lot of the time, you know, workers basically make the sacrifice. It's tough for them, but it, at the end of the day, the, the interest in keeping the organization alive and growing, um, you know, supersedes the, the sacrifice that is, is often made. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not dissimilar to to workers in trade unions. You know, often where where the trade union has been in existence for a long time and has an established relationship with the employer, there might be an agreement to release the shop steward or the representative 
um, with pay to attend meetings. But very often, um, local trade union representatives go without pay for the period that they're doing organizing work and are away from uh, the, you know, their daily work. So there are, there are some parallels. For women informal workers like most of the members of KKPKP, the disproportionate burden of care work that they bear is an additional barrier to their participation in organizing work. So you're right that childcare is a big issue for workers of the informal economy. Um, not least of all because, you know, where informal economy numbers are highest also tends to be the same countries where social protections and free uh, early childhood education and so on is non-existent. So, you know, we have a situation often where where workers, women workers in the informal economy have to take their children along with them to their work. So you see women in, in marketplaces and the street vendors and so on and waste pickers um, tagging along preschool children, which is not healthy for the kids and is quite disruptive of the work. So um, we, we, as we go, have spearheaded a campaign for childcare provision for women of the informal economy and a number of national organizations and the global nets have taken up the campaign. So it's, it's part of the sort of bouquet of social protection demands. And it's to say that, you know, social protection is not just about grants and, and so forth. It, it's got to extend to certain services, including the provision of, of childcare for workers of the informal economy. And we have some some examples also of, of organizations that have started to self-provide. Um, they've either partnered with other local NGOs or they've gone to the municipality and they've negotiated a space to to use and then they've organized their own childcare arrangements. That's happened in Accra in Ghana, um, and it's also happened in uh, for, amongst street vendors, and it's it's happened in Argentina, where waste pickers have, uh, you know, organised and negotiated for childcare facilities, um, and there are some other examples in the world. But we're we're trying to to. We've adopted a campaign in order to try and get municipalities and other players to see it as a basic necessity, you know, to enhance the the productivity and the quality of work of women in the informal economy by providing childcare services, including, um, you know, early child childhood schooling. We now return to the story of KKPKP. Purnima Chikarmani was, along with Lakshmi Narayan, another founder of the trade union. I apologize for the quality of the recording here, but it does get better soon. It came about, the formation of KKPKP came about as a kind of a, it was an outcome of, a, of adult education centers that we were running, actually. In the sense that, uh, you know, we were, I worked for a, used to work for a university. 
and uh, we had to run adult education centers through the department. And uh, my colleague Lakshmi Narayan was one of the people who was uh, also uh, through uh, a project looking at uh, the functioning of these adult education centers and uh, you know things like income generation for women and so on. And uh, during the course of that, she we encountered these uh, the child based pickers, and it was through interaction with them. The primary motive was to actually ensure that they learn better get more time to get educated and so on and uh, through that process uh, we started going around with them to the garbage bins and to see what is the work what is it the, the work that they do and so on and that's how we got closer to them and uh, through that got to know their mothers and finally it turned out i mean the mothers were more interested and was also at that time this whole talk of waste segregation the rio conference it was that time period in time, and uh, uh, we said that it, I mean we realized that the waste that they collect is actually coming from the homes of the better off, you know, the plastic, the paper, the metals, and so on. So we started a small campaign actually to say that you segregate your waste at source, and uh, these girls can come and pick it up from your homes. And when we started that in a particular residential area of Pune. Their mothers actually came forward and said, Are we are also waste pickers and we'd like to do, if you're doing something like this, you do it for us and we'll put our children in school. And that's how we started putting the children in school. And, um, uh, you know, the mothers started organizing around this. The mothers started going door to door to collect waste, uh, to collect separated waste in that particular area. And uh, there was an entrepreneur who came in and said that, you know, told the residents in that area and I rid the area of containers, of municipal containers and garbage will be off your streets and all. Which meant actually that the waste pickers would lose their livelihood. So they mounted resistance through talking to the entrepreneur first, then talking to the residents and finally we did a big win chip for Andolan which is held on to the containers and said you cannot take this out. But you let us collect from your doors, you know, that kind of a thing. And uh, that worked, but that actually brought home the point that although at that time, nobody saw much value in waste apart from waste pickers, who were considered, were among the most marginalized, the most, um, uh, you know, the most um, disenfranchised in the city. They were, they were highly visible as nuisance, but not highly invisible as workers and the work that they did was also very invisible. So um, we started talking to them about uh, the value of waste and of what they do, work that they do. And uh, there was also at that time they also thought that meaning they did not see what they did as work, as most informal workers. They just saw what they did which is actually retrieving recyclable materials. I mean today no waste picker will say that I do no work. The waste picker will be able to tell you what kind of work they do and what value it brings to the city and so on and so forth. But at that time, this was not there. And they saw it as something that they just did and that the fact, I mean, they saw it that they don't have their jobless. You know, that kind of a thing was there. When eventually, it, you know, this whole thing of that what you are doing is actually contributing to the city came about through a process of dialogue, 
through a process of data collection, through a process of, uh, yeah, through all those processes, basically, essentially dialogue with the waste pickers about recycling and where that material goes and so on. So once that entrepreneur left, through this whole, this whole process of dialogue, which is actually been informed very much by the Paulo Freirean methodology of education, which is action, action, reflection and action. That uh, the, uh, we said that, I mean, to them, waste was something that would never go from the street. It was there for generations, it would continue to be there. But the very fact that some of the materials that they collect might be valuable to other entrepreneurs as well, kind of hit home to us. But, so at that time, although we spoke about it with the, uh, the people whom we were in contact with, which were about 50 waste pickers or so, it didn't really make that much impact. But as we went around the city with those 50 waste pickers, uh, it kind of, in other places, other complaints started coming in of police harassment, of uh, people, you know, maltreating them in the sense saying, don't sit here, don't sit there, you're making dirty in the city, you are, you know, uh, you're thieves. Those kinds of things did come up. And uh, that, and, and, uh, so after that, he organized a, a kind of a, a parishad around this. A parishad is a large gathering around this, to which about 800, after campaigning around the city, the same base pickers came around and we discussed issues and all that. And about 800 base pickers were uh, part of that big gathering. Yeah. At which the decision to, at which it was basically a platform on at which they had their grievances about what they were doing, the kind of way that the society responds to them, uh, the issues that affected them, including, uh, you know, like, including people who uh, saw them as thieves. And, uh, I mean, they were actually a lot of abuse that used to happen to them, a lot of um, um, uh, Police harassment that used to happen, they used to be picked up every time that there was a theft in any area. The first person to be picked up was the waste in that area. And uh, at that conference, it was resolved that uh, we would set up the Kagatkas Patra Kashtakari Panchal. You're listening to Purnima Chikramani on the Nagrik Podcast. Purnima works with the Kagat Kachpatra Kashtakari Panchayat, the membership-based trade union of waste pickers and itinerant waste buyers in Pune, about which we are learning on this episode of the Nagrik Podcast. Both Purnima and Lakshmi were working with the Adult Education Department at Pune's SNDT Women's University when they co-founded KKPKP. Quite clearly, they did not belong to the same class or caste as most of the waste pickers that they were attempting to organize and lived very different lives. How did they bridge that gap? perfectly honest I think usually the issue is not really with building that trust the issue is that there will be actively some elements in society in the community who will challenge those relationships so uh, I mean I when we just started working with the waste pickers actually going around so the way we went about it is not only uh, having meetings with them but we did go around collecting waste with them ourselves because uh, I wanted a sense of how much they knew, how much they earned, what their uh, literacy and numeracy skills were, what kind of issues they faced and so on. And there's no, really no better way of getting it than actually going around and collecting waste yourself. 
so not only me but a lot of my colleagues and a lot of the people who worked with us in those days in fact for a long time it used to be one of the requirements before hiring anyone that you go around and collect waste and see how it feels and the waste because will also assess you and decide whether you are going to be able to continue working in this organization or not now i think trust builds automatically so there was really no issue there there was of course a lot of curiosity what do you get out of it how much are you paid uh, why are you doing this work what is in it for you which is all completely valid and those questions always came in a very straightforward manner from the waste pickers what starts coming across as issues which are working directly to perhaps challenge this trust is issues raised by different kinds of groups so obviously certain left based groups certain rpi and other political parties actively started lobbying against this process scrap dealers basically talking about caste saying that uh, why is there a particular caste coming and organizing why is the middle class getting engaged in it even if the actual number of activists who were doing it were like less than a handful and typically by then there was already some trust developed with the waste pickers so they were able to counter that however at i mean that so at a at a very organizational level in an organic manner those issues were resolved however publicly visibly those issues not only came then but they even come now i mean every now and then every other month someone writes an article a very uh, politically correct article on why why is it that you still have leadership that belongs to certain castes and it's all it's completely fair i mean i'm not even going to question that that definitely we need to ensure that waste pickers directly are occupying almost all the spaces not almost all all the spaces the fact remains that it is difficult for a completely illiterate waste picker who we are not collectively going to be able to manage to make the time to ensure that she reaches the levels of literacy that might be required to ensure that say the financial transactions of a trade union of 8000 members is managed or the financial transactions of a cooperative which has a 3 4 crore uh, annual budget with the municipality is managed so then if one is actually having waste pickers on the board but uh, not without the ability to completely execute everything there are going to be players now how many of the player, in fact right now even say within the such cooperative there is a there's a huge uh, how does one put it uh, so i'm not happy to call it inconsistency there's a uh, there's a fair amount of uncertainty insecurity that senior new staff face when they start working because it's difficult for them to determine who they are really accountable to so they are, there are senior staff in swach or even in uh, kkpkp who are post graduates who are management graduates who are accountable in a sense to a board of waste pickers and on the other hand the board of waste pickers holds them accountable for ensuring the entire organization functions and they have under them reporting to them very often children of waste pickers who are not accountable to their mothers anymore but are accountable to these staff that is these staff are actually accountable to the waste pickers so it's a fairly complex relationship of trust holding accountable of questioning of challenging it works i mean of course there have been many many issues it's not as if it's worked smoothly for all time there have been people who uh, senior staff who have had to be removed from work either because they are not effective or they've been corrupt or whatever various reasons and that's become a big issue if that person also happens to be related to a waste picker it becomes a bigger issue we suddenly have a lobby of waste pickers who will say this person should not be removed they are very good we'll suddenly have 
a very good person who a waste picker will say needs to be removed from work a very good person in the sense of in terms of all objective criteria uh, as far as their functions are concerned now a lot of this is further complicated because sometimes the people who are hired or fired belong to a certain caste or don't generally in our experience actually openly transparently discussing it however long it takes however animated it gets however vociferous it gets is usually the best way to resolve it because if i mean when you go down to actual details most waste pickers will agree if one gets down to breaking down an argument thread there and just like us i mean we would also usually agree and see reason to what uh, in what they are saying so that level of discussion if it happens then obviously you can arrive at really very straightforward objective criteria criteria to determine including who's in positions of leadership and so on you're learning about the kagat kachpatra kashtakari panchayat on the nagrik podcast kkpkp aimed to establish and assert waste pickers contributions to the environment their status as workers and their crucial role in the city's solid waste management today it has over 9000 members 80% of whom are women from socially backward and marginalized castes each member pays an annual fee to the organization and an equal amount towards their life insurance cover but while kkpkp chose to organize around the work of waste picking they could not afford to neglect issues around caste and gender yes of course we do relate to all those issues and we do relate to caste related atrocities complaints in the same manner that we would relate to any non livelihood related issue i mean not just education health social security pensions and so on but uh, say for instance you have a domestic violence you have you have a gender issue that comes up because you have a member whose son is um let's say convicted of or accused of raping another member's daughter it's it's not sometimes a caste based issue but it is a gender based issue and you're going to have people taking very strong stands so we do intervene in such cases of course even when the membership is directly involved and of course even otherwise uh, so similar caste issues have come up because it's not as if waste pickers all belong to the same caste and there are enough arguments even within uh, fairly marginalized caste groups about who <laughs> occupies the legitimate space in waste picking and whether other more marginalized or equally marginalized castes should have priority should get in should give spaces to work and whether of course upper castes so as waste collection systems become better and there is a little more dignity not only do men want to start doing the work men from the same family in the same communities and men who are also members of kkpkp but perhaps were not itinerant waste pickers but were itinerant buyers but equally you will have people from other castes who want to start doing the work because there is suddenly some more dignity it's not literally rummaging through waste and at all such times as a caste group also waste pickers have wanted to uh, take a position and it's completely fair i mean it's fine but again like i said a lot of this happens with a lot of discussion i mean there were two factors that uh, that uh, well, there were among the several factors were since large numbers of waste pickers were women should it be a women only organization since large numbers of waste pickers were from among dalit communities should it be a caste linked organization and finally uh, the thought the thinking was that labor as a category should not be broken up into all these uh, small uh, groupings and therefore that the, that whoever is a worker within this uh, 
system, which is that there were male itinerant waste buyers, there were female rag pickers. So all these should come, and there were people who were from, there were people from minority groups, there were people from Dalit groups uh, who were part of this. So therefore, that uh, I mean, the largest population of course was Dalit. But there were uh, groups from the minorities and all that involved, and that labor should not be split as a category, as a group, and therefore labor should be united across all these divides, and therefore we registered the union, including men and women, and not along caste lines. And I mean, there have actually even been individual individual cases of, say, uh, Brahmins as one. One famous member who actually belonged to a really upper caste, and uh, when there was a caste-based discussion that was happening in the monthly meeting, he turned around. He was a male also, and belonged to another caste and another community also. Was not even a Maharashtrian, and he said, "I mean, I I've been working as long as you, and I know I don't take any of these boxes." But don't you think I should have the same rights as you? And of course, of course, he was also obviously living in the same community as them, even though he was from a different uh, geographic. I mean, he was a South Indian and so on. So it was very easy for the waste pickers to see the logic of the argument he was making and understand that we need to come together as a work occupation sector for all our demands with respect to the municipality. Recognizing that when internal issues come up with respect to caste, we will still take us a, a position that is nuanced with respect to that. So, if, for instance, there's suddenly an influx of middle castes coming in who claim they want to do work, the waste pickers will argue and say that we don't want to make it free for all. We want to ensure that first it is the waste pickers who have been itinerant waste pickers who get integrated in Swatch before anyone else, and we don't want to just increase the membership of KKPKP with anyone who. is keen on doing this work but generally again like i am saying whether it is a male who is entering the sector because they want to do the work and they have no other alternative and therefore is arguing for that space it's a person from a different caste generally dialogue if of course if there is the possibility there is a time very often we don't manage to make the time for dialogue every time we as in as a trade union because there are a million issues that need to get discussed so an individual case like this which allows for this kind of reasoning this rationale this explanation this development of perspective collectively is simply not possible sometimes because of the pressure of 500 other more pressing things that need to get discussed but whenever these issues have come up and there has been structured discussion around it it's been fairly easy to get to find some kind of common ground and a way around it you are listening to lakshmi narayan on the nagrik podcast Previously in this episode, we looked at the different forms in which informal workers organize. Purnima and Lakshmi have also spoken about why they decided to organize as a trade union. Now, the theory behind trade unions is that while the balance of power in negotiations between employers and individual workers is ordinarily in favor of employers, negotiations are less unfair when workers negotiate as a group. This theory assumes that there is a particular employer 
that unions can negotiate with. Informal workers, however, work on a non-regular basis without a common workplace or a single identifiable employer. So who do they negotiate with and what are their demands? We return to Melanie Sampson. When it comes to negotiating, uh, reclaimers, waste pickers are in a somewhat unique position compared to other informal workers. So, for example, um, street traders need to negotiate with municipalities because they work in public space. Reclaimers need to do that too. But the, the, the difference is that reclaimers are also providing a municipal service. And so they can negotiate with the municipality, not just on the basis that we want to have access to this public space, but on the basis of we are providing a service to the residents and we are saving you a significant amount of money in how you deliver waste management services. And so that gives them kind of more leverage in terms of how they relate to municipalities. Reclaimers also have a direct relationship with industry because, of course, they are collecting the recyclable materials that are the inputs to the entire global recycling value chain. And that means that they can also be placing demands on and negotiating uh, with the recycling industry. And we see this happening more and more as many countries are developing extended producer responsibility programs um, reclaimers, waste pickers around the world are demanding that they be taken into consideration and also that industry negotiate with them in developing the EPR programs. And in South Africa, um, due to the struggles of waste pickers over a number of years, when we had our EPR regulations put in place last year, the EPR regulations state specifically that industry must integrate waste pickers. And beyond that, it also says that industry through EPR must be paying waste pickers for the services that, that they're providing. So they have, they have that additional leverage. Another feature of waste picking work and many other types of informal work is that unlike the factory or the shop floor, workers do not share a particular space of work. This presents a challenge for organizers and requires some creative solutions. Once again, I apologize for the quality of the recording here, but it will get better again very soon. See, typically the workers follows a particular cycle. They have a route, although they don't uh, go um, I mean, although they are supposed to be free roaming, they actually have a beat, a beat that each waste picker covers. So, along the beat would be a place where they could be wet along their beats because they would be going to the same areas every day. That is one. The garbage containers from which they would source the waste. So, the source of the waste would be another meeting point, which would be the garbage containers that were on the street which would be the landfills, uh, which would be any kind of dhalas, what they call in North India. Uh, so those kinds of things. So the source of the waste would be commercial areas, would be shops and all along which they or places where waste is dumped would be the second part where they could do that. The third point is the key apps. You know, waste pickers typically collect their waste in what are called boats in Maharashtra which are huge uh, sacks and for the world over actually this practice is there or they have these uh, sacks in which they collect the uh, waste materials 
I will take part of those stacks at a particular spot uh, and uh, they pile them up over there. So these are called tiyas. So the tiyas were the third uh, location. The fourth location would be the scrap shops. But in the process of organizing, obviously those scrap shop uh, trainers are going to be happy if you go around uh, organizing them as scrap shops until you know the scrap trainer and all that later. But in the earlier period, it was very much the garbage containers, the streets, the uh, the places where waste uh, is put, dumped, the tiyas were the main pot places, the vada pav stalls near where waste pickers congregate to eat their vada pav or to drink their tea or you know those kinds of places and the tiyas, the tiyas are very important places because see finally you have to get them together in one place somewhere. So when you fix up a tia and you say, okay, can we meet at this place? And everybody comes together there. And once you, but first you have to go to the disaggregated places and then uh, fix up a time and a place where they can meet together. The final place, sorry, I have left out one place of meeting also, which is the meeting point was the slum areas in which they live. Not all waste pickers, okay, all waste pickers live in slum areas. But there are certain slums in which there is a propensity for waste pickers to live. So therefore, in those slums where there were high waste picker concentrations, as we got to know them, that became the focal point as well. So apart from the work site where the organizing started, the meeting place became the place of residence where a lot of the waste pickers were together, uh, were residing together in common areas. To make a lasting difference to their circumstances, union members must be able to think beyond their immediate demands and about the various socio-economic and political forces that determine the conditions of their work. This is why increasing the political awareness of union members is an important part of the work of union organizing. We've taken up a number of activities, but the waste pickers themselves are, I mean, obviously, they are engaging in society, they are politically conscious people in any case, irrespective of anything we did as a trade union. And they have always been, I mean, they are illiterate, no doubt, and they have relatively lower access to different forms of media and communication. But it's not as if they have not been engaged in processes of thinking people before the formation of the union. They have obviously been intelligent and uh, addressing issues in their own way uh, a lot. What collective processes have helped is articulate what are the areas where we want to engage collectively, where we want to build a co collective position, where we want to learn more, where we want to understand. And those are the areas where we focused much more on having systematic, formal training, discussion, workshops, and so on. Training also very often has been a very organic process. It's not... I mean, we have had at various phases in the past two and a half decades, structured training programs as, as well. But for the most part, the training has been an organic process where the activists are learning honestly as much as uh, the workers themselves. So we focused on many things. We focused on um, the entire, okay, so the class system, but also with the perspective of how typically even waste pickers are viewed by the classic left. So looking at it from that perspective also and looking at how models like some of the ones we are promoting fit within the, let's say, at least right now within the 
political spaces as far as the far left is concerned because many of them are not going to accept these spaces although to be honest to be fair right now within india at least there's a lot of discussion and many left based groups also agree that these kind of ppps are perhaps a better way to ensure that workers agency is protected and so on we've had similar discussions on um, secularism on the kinds of divisive forces that operate today again this starts off very often from the caste based divisions even within the community and moving on to other uh, kinds of let's say divisive forces there's been discussion on that there's been a lot of systematic training on gender and uh, linked to that of course both violence and in terms of even really even just structured roles within the family there's been a lot of change in that as well i mean these speakers are quick to raise issues of inequity within the household of starting pushing their men to start doing work in the house pushing their sons to do the same there and so a lot of the training is also accompanied by seeing how much people are willing to implement and change their own family their own behavior their own lifestyle based on the training similarly there's been a lot of training on um, so at one point in time after a lot of structured training around issues that were broadly to do with advocacy to do with waste to do with where waste because fit in the waste system to do with plastics and with uh, so extended producer responsibility with looking at the scrap trade itself with inversing the pyramid of the scrap trade because right now a lot of the value in scrap is at the much higher ends of trade and processing and the significance in the margin is so much higher at those levels that the need to occupy those spaces which means really not only technology transfer in within not only within india within these groups but also systematic technology transfer when whether one is talking about the eu and india or developing countries in india and so on so there's been a lot of discussion on that on extended producer responsibility and even the global plastic treaty and currently how not just waste pickers but the entire global south is held responsible for the proliferation of plastic which is clearly a uh, very very american uh, i mean look at the petrochemical industry and where plastic is coming from so there's a lot of discussion on issues to do with waste with uh, trans boundary waste and how it impacts waste pickers with the scrap trade itself with environment with how waste pickers are held responsible whereas environmental issues really there are others who are actually far more responsible for with uh, gender with secularism with like i said with a whole lot of issues uh, i think couple of years ago 3 4 years ago we also decided to actually get into so we realized that there was a lot of political consciousness on a lot of issues but we were really unaware how see basic concepts of science basic uh, exposure or discussion on atheism on how we speakers look at some of these issues uh, were simply missing so we organized a series of uh, literally 12 i think over a year or over two years between 12 and 18 sessions on different topics because recognizing that most waste pickers have actually not gone through formal education at all there are some uh, some kinds of discussions that a person who's gone through formal education would be privy to whether it is um, simple geography mathematics science looking at evolution many of these things we were not sure whether the waste pickers had actually individually thought about had the time to think about had any platform where they could discuss and of course we recognize that i mean in this day and age even if they had not had the exposure then 
everyone's watching some amount of television everyone's reading listening to something and they would have a sense like say 25 years ago if an illiterate person didn't know whether the earth was flat or round they might have thought about it now you can't you really can't i mean no one can't know almost because of the way media is really out there even a fairly marginalized person will have access but we wanted to say how wanted to see how many of them have actually engaged with some of these processes thought about it a little more and whether it is really to do with the way people think or whether it is to do with a lack of exposure so we had a series of very interesting discussions on topics like that again extremely illustrative uh, i mean they were training sessions but it was uh, much more learning for all the resource people who we brought from really very many sectors so the process of building collective consciousness political education has been i mean is still of course very much ongoing and it's in that sense covered a whole range of issues over the past two decades in 2008 the pune municipal corporation made a five year agreement with swachh to decentralize door to door waste collection services cooperative members would collect segregated waste from over 2000 households the non recyclable garbage is further segregated for sale while the wet or organic and non recyclable waste is dropped off at the pmc's feeder points from there it is collected by the municipal garbage trucks and sent to the landfill this placed kkpkp in a direct relationship with the municipal body the pmc was the very party with whom the kkpkp had been negotiating on behalf of its members and now they were together governing swachh how did this affect their ability to address the work related concerns of their members the very fact that you are in a relationship with the municipal body uh, does a kind of uh, can uh, if you let it uh, affect the uh, uh, the making of the demands but at another level swachh itself because of the essential service that it provides the value of the waste picker in very many ways has increased yeah so because you are in a direct relationship with the municipal body we have got one more bargaining platform to uh, to do this so therefore one more forum for collective bargaining has emerged out of through this process so i would not see the two really at cross purposes or at uh, at uh, what does one say that although so therefore i think that um, uh, KKPKP, uh, with just making demands without being in a relationship, uh, would be uh, uh, no. I think that okay. I think the two have actually benefited from this um, relationship with the municipal body because it has given waste pickers more legitimacy, more more scope to demand from the municipal body because of the kind of work that they do. and because we are in a relationship with the municipal body so to be honest swachh is not an employer swachh is a cooperative and it employs only the staff so it has a staff of around 150 200 people who again very often many of them are urban poor many of them are children of waste pickers but they are considered the employees of swachh whereas the members are considered the member owners of the cooperative it doesn't of course mean i mean with the 3000 plus 4000 plus cooperative it's not as if every single waste picker is engaged in every decision so beyond a point to say that everyone is has complete agency would not be completely true but there is a system of representation there is a leadership there is an election of representatives at the 
very decentralized unit, which is the court level, and then they elect for the ward level, and then there's a central committee of base speakers who are part of the executive committee, and very few decisions are taken. I mean, there are a few decisions which need to be taken uh, really in a matter of days or hours sometimes. Those are occasionally taken with just the three-member executive body, but otherwise the base speakers are involved in all the decisions. So they are not. It doesn't really. Uh, speak of employer-employee relationships in that sense and to that extent if one is talking about the board of swatch and of the trade union i mean then one could say the same about a, any trade union also i mean you could have very autocratic trade unions which don't engage with membership and there's a leadership uh, even if it comprises of a few ways because which is taking the call on everything so i think a lot of this is more about the processes the democratic participatory systems the amount of engagement the level of nuance that is there in the discussion and it's not as if only a very hardcore structure resolves all that. However, structurally speaking, like I said, in bo both these organizations, the waste pickers are technically, in terms of structure, definitely in the lead. Yeah, I think in terms of the sorting sheds, in terms of the collection equipment and so on, being the kind of, in the very fact that the work has continued, I mean, this roster collection work, uh, is very much uh, an essential service that the municipal corporation, um, uh, I mean that both citizens and the municipal body, door-to-door -door collection of waste, is continuity of work for waste pickers, right? So therefore, the work has continued. Had it been contracted, like in any other city, waste collection has been contracted, waste pickers would have been wiped out and there would have been a struggle for existence altogether. Which, for example, let me go take you to the model of indoor, where waste pickers are not integrated into the municipal waste collection system. And regardless of the number of awards that the and accolades that the indoor municipality gets and draws, the status of waste pickers in indoor is absolutely pitiable. They have been pushed out of the city, pushed into back into the landfills, further marginalized through the process of uh, this thing, which has not happened in Pune. In Pune, they've been integrated into the city fabric, I believe. Uh, so we didn't really go about democratizing it as such. I mean, from the beginning, the trade union has had, a, like this Swatch Cooperative, the trade union has had a decentralized, so the waste pickers, depending on which community they come from, there's a geographic kind of election process. They elect their pratinidhis or representatives who are part of a larger board, which then selects from within itself a committee of waste pickers who are part of the union board. The, that comprises around 15 people. And the there are only three non-waste pickers who are part of that group. It's always been like that. It's never been more than that. Uh, when the union started, I mean, uh, the actual union registration happened due to a kind of formal collaboration between the SNDT University, which was at that point in time, the holding entity through which the project, which started working with peace pickers commenced. And there was another group called Dalit Swayam Sevak Sangh, which is a group of uh, Matangs in Pune, which has come around and over the years tried to work on uh, reforming the community, taking up issues, trying to address particularly uh, casteist issues that come up with, within the Matang community and uh, within the larger Hindu society. So the Ritzwem Sevak Sangh had proposed setting up an association of waste pickers, as had we through our own nascent experiences in organizing waste pickers. And when we heard of each other's efforts, we thought that 
Pune city was too small to really have two organizations. And whatever our differences of opinion or style, we would work it out, but it would make sense to come together. So I think it was a leap of faith for both DSS and some of us who were not part of DSS then to uh, register a trade union. And the three member non-waste picker leadership from among DSS and SNDT comprised one from SNDT and two from DSS. And uh, subsequently, it's it's grown to occasionally five, but the voting non-waste picker numbers of members is only three. And the DSS participation in the processes have been less, but everyone, including the waste pickers, more or less determines who should be part of the three-member non-waste picker community, depending entirely on how actively they've been involved, how effective they are as organizers, what kind of roles they have played, what kind of skills they bring to the table and that's been the process so it's not like I said it's not as if one has had to kind of establish very firm principles to say this is how democratic principles will be in play just discussion openly helps come around the of course the fact is that the union bylaws from the beginning as well as the swatch bylaws have very clearly said that the membership of the organization will always reflect the, sorry, the membership of the boards will always reflect the demographics of the organization. So if there are more women waste pickers, obviously there need to be more women on the board. If there are more Dalits, there need to be more Dalits on the board and so on. But uh, the three non-members who are part of the union or the cooperative board are usually non-member activists who only make it to that place if they have worked long enough and the waste pickers have a level of comfort. Really, I think that KKPKP in Pune provides one of the best examples of uh, a trade union organizing and organizing for their members to be paid for the service they provide and simultaneously struggling for the provision of social benefits. And what's really interesting to me about what they've done is that they've shown this you can get social benefits and you can be paid without becoming a formal employee of a municipality. And this is something really important because people often think uh, that the only way to increase uh, reclaimers or improve reclaimers' working uh, conditions and income is by making them employees. And what KKPKP has shown is that there are other ways of, of doing this. One notable success of informal worker associations across the world has been to build international networks to advocate for their interests at international fora and effect changes in national policies. For example, StreetNet International, an international network of street vendor organizations, has been officially recognized by the International Labour Organization. It also participates in the International Trade Union Congress in the capacity of an observer. Similarly, the International Domestic Workers Network, or IDWN, 
came together to advocate for an international convention on domestic work at the ILO. In 2021, 36 organizations of home-based workers from 20 countries became the first affiliate members to join the HomeNet International Global Network. In 2018, a global alliance of waste picker organizations had also been formed. A number of things. I mean, of course, one is uh, just learning how those models work definitely helps us in our cities to determine what kind of changes can be made here. And the waste pickers are also always curious to see whether those models will work here or not. So just some amount of learning from each other definitely happens from networking. There is some level of advocacy that happens, particularly at global processes. And the Global Alliance of Waste Pickers has definitely managed to actually occupy that space fairly effectively. We've participated in the COPs and in the ILO conventions, as well as in right now in the UNIA processes. And uh, I think overall, globally, the recognition of the role of waste pickers and the fact that something like this has global recognition automatically impacts waste pickers at very, very local levels. Because obviously, people turn around and start looking at a waste picker more closely when that happens. So international networking is critical because, you know, what it does is it brings together organizations across across the world to share ideas, to share strategies, to share learnings. Um, it also helps to pool resources that can be redistributed um, for training purposes or, um, you know, for, for, for other solidarity actions and so on. <clears throat> Having a uh, an international network also gives a f sort of visibility to a particular sector. So, you know, whether it's StreetNet International or HomeNet International or the nascent waste picker organization or the International Domestic Workers Federation, um, you know, it gives them a level of visibility that then gives them a stepping stone to um, engaging with other global organizations, whether it's the international trade union movement or whether it's climate change global organizations or other, other interest groups, whether it's the ILO and so on. So it just, it, it gives a, a level of coherence to the voice in a particular sector. And then what we as we go offer is support to that process. Um, so we've spent many years supporting the initial establishment of the network organizations and then continued support for their, for their activities, including encouraging um, the networks to, to sort of talk and act together on specific content issues, whether it's gender-based violence at work or whether it's um, the use of public space or whether it's uh, social protection, um, the need for collective bargaining. You know, what we do is we help bring together the ideas of the different networks um, and try and create spaces where Ideas can be exchanged around the content 
of measures to improve the the working conditions of workers in the informal economy. That said, it's not as if these international or national networks or networking processes necessarily ensure that changes on the ground for the waste pickers with whom you're directly working happen as easily. And it's always a pull. I mean, it's always a pull and a push. We uh, obviously don't have the liberty of engaging actively. We don't have the resources to be able to actually devote people to just be part of those processes and also contribute to processes here. Obviously, we are all on very, very tight budgets and it's not possible to have that kind of space and time to even just engage, forget travel and uh, interact closely, even over Zoom and other processes. It's not easy always to get uh, waste pickers together in such processes. But, and of course, at the end of that kind of networking, it's not necessarily as if everything learned is going to translate into benefits for waste pickers on the ground. So it's always a bit of a push and a pull. There are groups, sometimes it's much easier because even if a waste picker group from another city, a village also nearby comes forward and has a very clear requirement, everyone, including the waste pickers in Pune, would automatically rush not only to help, to support, whether it's physically, financially, whether it is explaining how things work here and so on. But when I was talking about actually developing networks, one is ending up spending much more time there. So obviously, I mean, we've had we've actually had discussions in KKPKP where, we speak a, where the uh, waste picker board has basically said that even if the national network is paying KKPKP to support them, um, it's taking up so much more of your time, all of your time. And it actually means that you are not available here for issues that could move here successfully. So uh, again, we've discussed this and we've spoken about the need to still be available. So part of, I mean, at least as part of the national and international networking processes, I think many members of KKPKP as well as some of us recognize that we owe it to the waste pickers in other parts of uh, India and outside because we do to some extent have a longer history and that definitely helps us having, I mean, negotiated some kind of space and it's only, I mean, we definitely need to share that because otherwise everyone is going to start from scratch and it's really not fair. That said, it cannot occupy more than a certain amount of our time. So networking processes help in learning and in building a common advocacy and helping defining common positions beyond the point they are they do detract they do take away time and they don't necessarily always result in the kind of change you want to see on the ground but of course i mean obviously we will continue to participate in them and try to give as much time as we can to those processes you're listening to lakshmi narayan on the nagrik podcast my name is aju john earlier in this episode we came across some of the special challenges that informal workers face when they try to come together to organize and improve their conditions of work we also looked at some of the different forms in which informal workers come together. What has been missing in our discussion has been the role of mainstream trade unions, meaning the trade unions that represent formal workers. We return to Melanie Sampson and Jane Barrett. The relationship between formal trade unions and waste picker organizations is a really, really tricky one. You know, we've seen in this context of neoliberalism where the formal sector is shedding jobs, uh, trade unions in a number of countries have decided that they want to start organizing informal workers in order to increase their membership and remain vital to the economy. But generally, they've tried to apply their existing models of organizing uh, to informal workers, and, and this, this just isn't appropriate, and, and, and these initiatives collapse. 
um, because they're not uh, reaching out to waste pickers in the way that they need to be engaged and they're not addressing the, the issues. And, and unfortunately, we've also seen formal trade unions developing uh, often a very patronizing or paternalistic relationship to informal workers, including waste pickers, assuming that they can tell them how to organize, whereas, of course, uh, informal workers and waste pickers have always been organizing. They can't work unless there's some form of organizing that they're doing, whether it's officially recognized or not. And I think that if unions want to be forming relationships with reclaimer or waste picker organizations, they need to develop that humility and understand that they don't understand how the informal sector works, how these workers are working and how they are organizing and to begin to engage by learning from them and supporting their forms of organizing. But, but I, I really think it's important to always ensure the autonomy of uh, waste picker and informal worker organizations so that they're not subsumed within trade unions, formal trade unions. There can be a kind of solidarity. Um, but I think that we've seen that there's a, a real need for, if we're having mass-based democratic organizations, then they need to be uh, made up of and led by the, the workers whom, whom, whom they are organizing. And I do think there's a lot that the formal trade unions can be learning from waste pickers and other so-called informal workers, because as with neoliberalism, the members of the traditional trade unions, their work is being informalized. Uh, they can be learning from those who've been organizing under these conditions for a very long time in, in terms of how they can continue to engage and, and support their members in, in these changing conditions. The power of workers in the informal economy lies more in their numbers and in their association with other allies, including um, employed workers. So, you know, it's, it, it requires looking a little bit differently at unpacking power in a new way and perhaps exploring new ways of exercising um, the power that workers in the informal economy have, um, which, you know, which isn't the traditional withdrawing of labor, um, although the withdrawal of labor can have some impact, you know, if street vendors, market traders, for example, close down the markets in many cities that cuts off, off the supply of food. So there is some economic power that can be exercised, but it's, it's relatively limited. So we need to be imaginative about other ways of exercising what power workers in the informal economy have and getting the trade union movement, again, to think um, more imaginatively beyond just the traditional weapon of the with, withholding of, of labor, the strike weapon. Um, and, you know, I think nobody has all of the answers, but it, it requires engagement and discussion and pushing um, the organizations of informal workers, pushing the formal trade union movement to to take them more seriously and to give them space, give them voice, and to to have um, you know respectful democratic discussions about finding solutions rather than assuming that the trade union movement has all the the answers.
in South Africa, we have a very nice example of how uh, an international organization, in this case, WeGo, uh, came in to help catalyze uh, organizing of reclaimers, but with a key focus on building democratic organizations. So WeGo, for the past number of years, has been uh, providing funding for uh, an organizer who has a long history in organizing in democratic trade trade unions and social movements in South Africa to begin the processes of working with reclaimers to help them to organize themselves. But the key focus there has been to create um, a, a reclaimer organizing committee. So as members have been uh, recruited, as reclaimers have been recruited to start participating in these collective activities, there was a process through which a, a, a team of reclaimer activists emerge who are playing the lead roles in organizing. And they are, uh, the, the, the lead organizer, the non-reclaimer organizer is focusing on developing their skills to, to be just fantastic organizers. And now the organizing committee is, is playing a lead role in uh, building the capacity of others to be organizing and to be leading projects. So it is a democratic organization which focused first on bringing reclaimers together in order to develop their ideas, their demands, and, 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 and take forward their struggles. And the focus only now is on formalizing an organization. You know, as I said, as I said earlier, a lot of trade unions have actually found a way to accommodate the associations as either as affiliates of the trade union federation, or in some cases, and I can give you a number of examples for in in Tanzania and in in uh, Uganda, where the sector trade union actually extends its reach to workers of the informal economy. And so in, in Tanzania, for example, the commercial workers union has an arm which deals, you know, which, which has as its membership the, uh, the market vendors of, of uh, Tanzania. And they operate as a, like a branch of the commercial workers union. Um, the hospitality union in Tanzania has a branch which covers domestic workers. Um, the transport union in Uganda has a branch that deals with um, motorcycle taxi drivers. And in all of those cases, the workers that came into the formal trade union were pre-organized in their self-organized way, but they sought an alliance with the workers who have an employment relationship and then they became a branch of the trade union so that's the kind of model that we aspire to you know that's the best case scenario where there's an integration within a sector um, it's not always easy um, there are examples where a trade union federation has for example um, set up a informal economy desk um, and has invited workers of the informal economy to participate in federation activities, but where they're not accorded the same status as other as as workers who are formally employed. And sometimes that um, discrimination, for want of a better word, 
is driven by a kind of um, an anxiety that because workers of the informal economy in many situations, particularly in Africa, outnumber workers who have an employment relationship, there's a sort of fear that it could change the nature of the trade union federation and that it could be taken over by different interests and so on. Um, but it's, it's, um, it's a problematic conception because it, it does leave the workers of the informal economy having a, almost like a second class citizenship within the trade union movement. So personally, I prefer the model of each sectoral trade union itself um, welcoming the workers of the informal economy into its ranks and then that union is then represented as a whole in the federation and uh, rather than separating out workers of the informal economy with a just a sort of uh, you know, the second class status of a desk or a, an office rather than being fully integrated into the constitution of the, the trade union movement. Um, sorry, you can see I'm quite um, negative about, about unions. And, and one thing you do need to know is that I am actually a former trade union official. So I was the national training coordinator for the National Union of Metal Workers in South Africa. Uh, and when I started uh, working with reclaimers, I myself was thinking with that organizing uh, approach and, and, and mode of representing workers and trying to apply that to reclaiming and nothing made sense to me. And it's really once you work with the concrete experiences of the workers on the ground um, that I've come to these different understandings of, of how reclaimers should be organized. You know, when I first started working with, with uh, waste pickers, I was just beginning to enter this sphere. I went to the uh, first global meeting of waste pickers in, in Bogota, Colombia, and I heard Lakshmi from KKPKP speaking, and I, she's brilliant, and I loved, you know, all of her ideas. And um, after she spoke, I went to her and I said, so, you know, you didn't mention any demands related to ensuring that the municipality employs your members. Um, and as a, a trade unionist who had actually then started working with municipal workers, this for me was the obvious demand to make. And Lakshmi looked at me and kind of shook her, set her head and said, well, why would I want to do that to my members? And I think for me, that was a really clarifying moment in terms of why we need a, a really different approach to, to organizing reclaimers. You're listening to the Nagrik Podcast. liked what you've heard so far, if you felt you learned something from this episode, then please tell your colleagues and friends about this. Share this episode on social media. That really is the best way you can help ensure the longevity of this project. 
My name is Aju John and this podcast is a part of Nagrik Open Civic Learning, my project to radically reduce the cost of learning to participate in public life. Now, earlier in this episode we discussed the links between neoliberalism and informal work. We learned that while the majority of work has always been performed through informal means, neoliberal policies have whittled away at the islands of formal work, especially in the rich nations of the world and impoverished informal workers in the poorer nations. One such policy is the privatization of municipal services. Utilities such as electricity, water, transportation and waste management were privatized around the world. We learned how municipal contracts for waste collection services in the poorer nations can dispossess waste because of their sources of livelihood. In that context, how do we understand the role of a work cooperative of waste pickers in resisting these trends? Even as it provides door-to-door waste collection services to citizens, how can it safeguard against the larger forces that diminish waste picker incomes and the quality of waste picker lives? There, there are many examples, particularly in Latin America, in countries like Brazil and Colombia, where uh, waste pickers have organized into cooperatives. They've taken forward their struggles, often you know, on the streets and in the courts. In, in Colombia, they've been taking the, the municipality of Bogota to the constitutional court a number of times. And through those struggles, they have been able to really transform uh, the conditions of work of the of the waste pickers securing their access to materials ensuring that they're paid for the service that they that they provide and ensuring that they are involved in decision making around um, around uh, anything related to to recycling and waste management in south africa uh, we've had a, a different experience with cooperatives and this relates to the fact that many of the cooperatives have been formed at the behest of government and, and we see in South Africa, when government is pushing waste pickers to form cooperatives, 92% of cooperatives in the waste sector fail. But that's not because there's an inherent problem with cooperatives, it's the type of cooperatives that are being formed. And, and this is why it's been really important in the South African context to develop different ways of organizing uh, reclaimers, such as, as the African Reclaimers Organization. And something that's really important to note is even in those very successful countries like Brazil, um, the vast majority of waste pickers are not members of cooperatives. And because all of the legislation and policy focuses on integrating Waste pickers who are in cooperatives, the majority of reclaimers are excluded. And that is why in South Africa, we've also had this focus on how do we organize individuals uh, in different ways that don't require them to be part of cooperatives, and how do we ensure that they are integrated and receive the benefits of being integrated and being paid for the services that they provide. Entire idea of the Swatch Cooperative being formed in this manner was to tell the municipality that you do not contract out this work in this manner. That at this level of labor, if you start contracting out and you get uh, players coming in who are offering services at a lower rate than what is, say, offered by Swatch, it essentially means that they are either compromising the environment significantly, the waste collection service itself or the labor and very likely all three. So the whole idea of setting up Swatch as a pro-poor 
private public partnership all those years ago was to say that the city was definitely not in a position to hire all of these people as municipal workers and they would never have done that anyway all municipalities well before we started swatch were anyway on uh, zero hiring terms as far as municipal staff were concerned the idea was that you set up an autonomous cooperative that is almost a part of the municipality which offers and you are offering the opportunity for waste pickers who otherwise are unlikely to manage to enhance their livelihoods they are likely if anything to get to a level of a contracted worker but they lose agency they lose autonomy they lose tenure potentially when they are working under a contractor and looking at an option of having an agency of waste pickers having the cooperative of waste pickers offering the service of doorstep collection so the whole idea was that you do not bring in private competition in that space that said since day one political groups i mean the administration clearly saw it like that when swatch was first brought to the table but uh, like i said that said since the beginning many elected representatives some citizens groups and many others have said then this will become monopolistic where is the uh, where is the competition we want market face forces to prevail and so on and uh, of course there has been a long back and forth there's also been enough administrative recognition of the fact that at this level contracting out and looking for lower cost services is not good and not an option meanwhile we have advocated quite strongly over the past 10 years 15 years that even if this much model were to die were to be killed were to be terminated anyway i mean we might choose to terminate the contract because it's not attractive to the waste pickers and the organization the municipality may choose to terminate it but either which way uh, the city the municipality owes the waste pickers who have been offering the service to be integrated in whatever manner of waste collection they come up with and we have some kind of precedent in the neighboring municipality of pimprichinchwad where we had uh, fought a similar case and did have a kind of high court uh, it's not really a judgment but it's a kind of uh, high court consensus that the municipality and the waste pickers organization arrived at which we feel can definitely be used as precedent irrespective of course the municipality itself has always almost always committed that whichever waste picker is currently in swatch will be integrated in any new waste collection contract the point is that so far we have tried not to get into that space of offering the same service at a potentially lower rate than what we are now the so that this is a second five year contract that we are actually executing with the municipality and it's a slightly more enhanced contract compared to the first five year contract however we recognize right now that the municipality particularly over the past couple of years and definitely in the past 10 years every time it's had an opportunity there's been a new administrator there's been a new private company that's come in there's been an old private company that's come in there's been an elected representative who's pushed for it there's always uh, the i mean this possibility of a new contractor coming in is always hanging over the head of swatch so it's not as if this discussion has not happened and typically it goes around in the same manner where the argument we have been making is that to the municipality is that any other way you do it even through a private contractor is definitely going to cost the municipality more and we don't doubt that for many reasons including that if the municipality were going to contract out the work of doorstep collection to a private entity which then hires workers then they can only do so on minimum wages terms if they do that the cost to municipality is bound to be higher because there's not only the cost that the contractor will need to make just to stay i mean why would the contractor do it for any other reason and plus there is a cost of recovering the money from citizens now if the municipality decides to recover it from property tax directly without the user fee coming in directly to the citizen 
from uh, sorry to the waste picker from the citizen there is an overhead to that cost also there are also i mean there are good uh, fairly nuanced details of what percentage of uh, property owners in pune actually pay property tax what uh, the entire slum population is and if the municipality actually had to offer a waste collection service where it centrally paid a contractor and it ensured that the money for that contract came in through higher property tax it's uh, i mean we have enough data and the municipality has also agreed that the cost to the citizen would be at least fourfold at the very minimum very likely to be tenfold but depending on what income group they fall in it's likely to be four to 10 times higher than what they pay now so obviously that's not a very attractive proposition for the municipality that said right now so the latest negotiation of course every time we discuss some of these things more transparently we are also playing our cards very openly to the municipality and the most recent lot of discussions that have happened over the past year the municipality has recognized this and has kind of come to an understanding saying okay we'll bring in other players so that it's not a monopoly and we would like to have uh, better rates if that is possible but what we'll do then is ensure that other players come in on the same terms and we've been trying to establish with the municipality that that is uh, it there's an inherent contradiction in that that swachh was set up as a workers cooperative by the municipality it's an act of the general body through which it was passed and in fact the municipality has put together this organization in a sense even though of course the organization is autonomous and independent of the municipality so for the municipality to invite another entity they would have to do the same thing to that entity and it would be it would make no sense really so this whole uh, argument that other players have brought in saying that we want competition with respect to swachh has actually come out of a few elected representatives wanting to run certain aspects of the model in their own wards so that comes from a very limited narrow myopic kind of interest and which is okay i mean obviously it's going to be there because they feel that they can access the constituency that they are elected through directly so they would like to access them by having their own workers go go around and meet them on a daily basis share information with them and so on and that's clearly where the elected representatives for the bulk are coming from within the elected representatives who are over 115 number there is perhaps not enough common understanding of how a new model should look or complete understanding of what all a new model could mean and what the cost and the logistic changes required for that would be so right now i mean the this current state where like i said over the past year we are realizing that they may actually want to contract out only the running of the cooperative so as i said uh, we are ne- we've not been in competition with other private players in the same space because this space is not occupied by private players on the same terms if the municipality asks for a waste collection contract say on, on motorized collection terms through a contracted player we are unlikely to bid for it the kkpkp like in the pimpri chinchwad case will choose to stay out and uh, fight on behalf of the workers rights and say uh, let whoever comes into play work what they are right now trying to do however the municipality trying to perhaps not trying to what they are thinking they may want to consider doing is offer other players to work on exactly the same terms as swachh which means that the the workers will again be and that's where we've tried to point out the contradiction that effectively what the municipality administration is saying is that you will set up another entity which will work on the same terms so the workers will again be members and owners of that so effectively it's like dissolving swachh and setting up another cooperative in its own in its place 
which doesn't really matter to us if you do that and it operates on the same terms and please i mean we are happy to be out of it also but then we will stay around as kkpkp and ensure that that doesn't become a kind of fake uh, proxy cooperative where someone is taking the basically calling the shots and just getting base because to side so the municipality recognizes like i said enough administrators and elected representatives recognize some of the inherent contradictions in this and there are multiple pushes and pulls it's not as if everyone in the municipal administration or elected representatives is on the same page in terms of how a new model should look where swachh might fit or where the base because might fit in that entire model so just to answer your question basically that how do we address the issue of competition with respect to rates we are not really in that space and we are not really arguing to say that we will offer that at the same or lower rate so that issue has come up but this is how we've argued it so far i am not at all sure that if the municipality brings out a tender terms which is on say a uh, uh, typical contracted kind of model we will agree to do it at anything that will mean less than minimum wages however and we may not agree to do it at all because it may not be in our interest to run a contracted model like that if the idea is to run the swachh model in exactly the same manner but in a new avatar we may just decide to step out and say okay i mean let let someone else run it i think when we're looking at what co-ops need to look out for the same applies to actually any uh waste picker reclaimer organization whether they're they they take the form of a cooperative or a trade union or an association so i think the first thing to to look out for is ending up uh being controlled by ngos municipalities or industry where those parties have undue influence on the decisions and and the ways that um the 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 waste pickers are are organizing and the demands they're making so one of the things that we've seen happening in south africa and i'm sure in other places is for example aero developing principles um that any other party in the sector needs to comply with if aero is going to work with them and that includes transparency and collective decision making and accepting uh acknowledging that uh, the reclaimers are the experts in the area so one thing is to make sure that they have principles um which others must abide by so there is an advantage of course in being having a foot in the system there's huge advantage in swachh working closely with the municipality because one gets to add value one gets to work out newer systems newer um let's say newer programs newer activities that is particularly in the area of waste which offer potential for much much more which offer potential not only for the environment and the city and the city's cost and citizens but also ensure many more livelihoods cleaner greener decent livelihoods are created and that we will definitely lose out on if we decide to step out of that space the second thing is to make sure that there are contracts in place if they are going to be providing uh recycling services with a municipality so we've had some examples in south africa where there have been pilots that have happened but the municipality never formalized those into agreements and um and then they can just collapse uh or the municipality we've seen them renege on promises that they've made but there's nothing to, to I think the third thing to watch out for is to ensure that from the very beginning if you are going to be if waste pickers are going to be providing a service that they need to be paid for that service if if we've seen that if they do not demand payment from the very beginning um then 
it's very hard to 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 insist on being paid after that because you've seen that you can be that they can be providing that service for free. And I think that the other thing in, in order to avoid um, co-optation uh, practices we've seen reclaimer organize, uh, organizations developing is that they have to always ensure that they are deepening the democratic nature of their own organization and ensuring that if uh, reclaimers go to negotiate with the municipality, you don't just send one reclaimer. Um, you know, there has to be a group who are going so that they're collectively responsible and ensuring that they're always uh, accountable to, to their membership. And I think, you know, I've been giving examples from South Africa, but, you know, there's wonderful examples of this all over uh, the world. And we have to recognize that academics like me, I'm drawing this knowledge from the experiences and the practices of the, of, of the, the waste pickers um, rather than drawing it from the academic air. Meanwhile, like you say, in many other municipalities in India and outside, typical uh, waste management, waste collection, uh, privatization contracts started coming up. We started arguing at the national level as well as at the international level within waste picker groups that we need to make a case with our governments at the city, state and central level to say that they need to do one of two things. Either engage with waste pickers in similar models where waste pickers come together, form a cooperative, form a trade union, form a company, form whatever form of association works for them and engage directly with the municipality in offering a collection service. The municipality, like in the Kutumashri model, say in Kerala, where something similar has uh, happened, although it's not necessarily waste pickers who've got integrated in it, it's urban poor who've got integrated. So either waste pickers come together and demand that, and that is a model that the municipality takes on, or the municipality and the state and the centre effectively mandates municipalities to enumerate and register and identify the waste pickers who are actually free-floating itinerant waste pickers and they get the first priority in getting integrated in any waste collection model. Now, in principle, this is what AIW, the Alliance of Indian Waste Pickers and KKPKP and Swatch and all of us will argue for, that the waste picker needs to be in every city enumerated, registered by the municipality and she needs, she or he needs to have the first right of refusal to work under a waste collection contract if the waste pickers of the city aren't already organized and in a position to offer a service like this. Now, it's extremely difficult for a fairly, again, like I'm saying, a very vulnerable group, very often not literate, very often so dispersed that they don't even have spaces and time to come together. It's difficult to conceive of such a scattered group of informal sector workers coming together in a coalition and forming an entity that can offer a service. That's definitely uh, only possible where the waste pickers have already been organized. However, it's entirely possible if the municipality creates systems for them to get integrated as regular contracted workers. So our argument has been one of the two at least should be the mainstream models that municipalities follow. In Pune and Pimpri Jinshwar, since the existence and the let's say, relative strength of the organization preceded privatization, preceded even the talk of waste collection contracts, we could occupy that space. In Pimpri, we occupied it temporarily through the Swatch Cooperative and when things didn't work out, we signed out of the contract and took the municipality to court and then argued that the waste pickers need to get integrated in the private contract. Now, is it a faith accompli? Is it not possible for municipalities who already have long-term contracts to revert to waste collection systems like this, it's difficult to say. I mean, so it's not only about, it's really finally not only about what the municipality decides to do in its wisdom or what citizens agree to. It's very often also what the workers want. So we, we know from our experience in Pune and Pimpri Chinswar that a typical waste picker 
if you were to ask her 20, 25 years ago what she wanted, she would have argued very strongly against even a swatch kind of model. She would have, I mean, you ask a waste picker who's collecting waste from the streets, what are the issues that affect her and what she wants? She'll want more waste. She will want easier access to more waste and a better price for the waste because that is the work she is used to. That's the work she's most comfortable with. And she is going to look at how to better that Obviously, without necessarily looking at all the potential models that could exist in other cities, the threats to collection in the same manner as it is right now and so on. It is to the credit of Pune's waste pickers that they were willing to make that jump because it's easy for us to articulate and say the model can look like this and look like that. But it's finally up to every individual worker to make that jump. It's finally up to every individual worker who makes an income from selling waste every single day to decide that she's not going to do that, but she's going to go around house to house and service citizens and cover perhaps only a tenth of the waste that she might typically get from a container and finish her workday in far fewer hours, but not get a daily income and wait till the end of the month to basically get the earnings from the citizens. To their credit and obviously to the value of organizing and mobilizing and collective action, they were fairly confident that they would be able to recover the money and they got it. And that's how the Swatch model really worked. In Pimpri, where we went through the same processes, the Pimpri model was construed slightly differently. And the erstwhile waste pickers, the Aitheran waste pickers, first struggled to make the jump and actually start waste collection as Swatch. And also that model was a slightly hybrid model. The waste pickers were not expected to get their user fee entirely from citizens. So they relied on a mix of uh, part user fee from citizens, sale of scrap and part subsidy by the municipality. Not subsidy really, part cost of the waste collection service coming from the municipality. And there, when actually, a pri I mean, where we signed out after there were issues with the municipal compliance to the contract, the municipality brought in a contractor and the waste pickers absolutely didn't want to get into the contracting mode any more than they wanted to get into the switch mold after being itinerant waste pickers. However, they slowly and gradually made that shift and they soon got so used to it, to working under a contractor and mobilizing and lobbying for their own entitlements under the contracted model, given the issues with it, that they didn't want to consider a switch model again. So just like an itinerant waste picker in Pune now aspires to switch, even though 20 years back many didn't and some of them lost that space, a swatch waste picker never wants to do itinerant waste picking anymore. In the same manner, in Pimpri, a contracted worker who worked under a contractor and didn't want to go back to the swatch model, finally had to shift to a slightly more organized, I mean, so over the past couple of years, the Pimpri Jinsford municipality has contracted out to much bigger players, to much bigger contractors, where they, the waste pickers don't even have access to the dry waste, but they are contracted workers. So the waste pickers were not happy to make that shift. But they had to, they had no choice because they were now working as contracted workers. And if the municipality changes the contract, what we could fight for is that they get retained as workers, but not that they can determine the terms of work. That is determined obviously by the nature of the contract the municipality has with the company. So the waste pickers there are now integrated under a newer contract and they don't even want to go back to the previous mode of contract. So workers also obviously get into a comfort zone with respect to the work that they are engaged in. They learn to negotiate the terms both with the employer, with the citizens, with the municipality, with the corporators, with each other. And then to move on to another thing becomes difficult to move back to a previous model, even if it was perhaps better in some ways, is also difficult. So Part of the whole shift, like like I'm saying, even in Pune, if for some reason we decide that we don't want to compete in case the municipality comes up with, uh, with terms of contract that are not extremely attractive for the Swatch organization 
or in our perception for the waste pickers either and we choose to stay out of it and we go ahead with some other kind of model over two years and we try our best to ensure the waste picker rights are protected. I doubt that coming back to a Swatch Life model will either be feasible or even be attractive to the waste pickers. With this two-sided uh, relationship between neoliberalism, neoliberalization and reclaimers or waste pickers, uh, I think that ideally uh, waste picker organizations want to be having a dual strategy where, first of all, uh, they are, which many of them are doing, they're organizing to protect the terrain that the waste pickers have established for themselves. So that is uh, demanding that waste pickers be allowed to continue doing their work, that this be formally recognized, that they be uh, officially integrated, and that they be paid for the work that they're doing. So they have to protect uh, the work that the, that, the, that the members are doing against dispossession uh, by the municipalities and the private companies. At the same time, they really uh, ideally should be organizing against neoliberalization and these broader economic policies um, and, and municipal, municipal policies that are you know, rendering in South Africa the majority of the population uh, to be unemployed and, and with little prospect of employment. And, and so I do think that ideally they want to be uh, engaging in alliances with organizations and movements that are mobilizing against neoliberalism more generally and who are mobilizing for, you know, a more just society, for a just transition. And, uh, and, and really, this, this means struggling against capitalism. That was Melanie Sampson on the Nagrik podcast. Her advice for informal worker organizations is the last word on this episode. To those of you who have listened so far, you have my deepest gratitude. If you learned something about organizing informal sector workers through the experiences of the Kagat Kachpatra Kashtakari Panchayat and the Swatch Cooperative, please tell your friends and colleagues about us. Share this episode on social media. If you have a suggestion about another area of civic and political work that you would like to learn more about, or a story of incredible civic action that you feel needs to be documented, please write to me at aju at nagriklearning.com. My thanks also to my guests Lakshmi Narayan, Purnima Chakarmani, Jane Barrett and Melanie Sampson all of whom were very generous with their time. And until the next episode of this podcast, this is me, Aju John, saying goodbye.